Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Music Therapy podcast. I'm your host, Brian Locasio, and today's guest is multiply disabled, multiply queer clinical music therapist and supervisor specializing in long-term care, especially work related to the various stages of dementia and its impact on individuals' participation in their communities. As a person who grew up in dysfunctional relationship systems with disordered attachment, the research and clinical focus on relational approaches and intersubjective spaces makes a lot of sense. She focuses on community-focused music therapy within the long-term care environment, which means approaching relationships both on the micro or individual levels, as well as from the macro or community levels. The PREPARE acronym from Community Music Therapy influences the way they conceptualize sessions and larger projects. I want to give a warm welcome to Sarah Biedka. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. We appreciate having you. Thanks. One of the first questions I always ask, and I almost phrase it the exact same way every time because it's just such a fascinating question, is how do you define music therapy? Whew, that's a, always a loaded question and people mm-hmm. ask you to have an elevator speech and it's it better be a very tall elevator. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, at this time, to me, music is a... Music therapy is a music-centered process focused on individual and community relationships to maximize quality of life and functioning. Um, So when I'm working with students and when I'm discussing reducing harm and cultural humility and work with older adults, I really emphasize the importance of honoring the intersection of at least two complex intersectionalities in a one-to-one session. especially those of our clients and those of our own and how knowledge and reverence for each component is vital to functioning relationships and ultimately effective music therapy. So you can imagine if you're in a group setting, it's just intersectionality on intersectionality on intersectionality. Is that difficult to like manage and distinguish all those individual like identities and the way they intersect while also balancing like music and psychology all at the same time. What is that like? Well, sure. I think just as with any other component of music therapy, you're always zooming in and zooming out. Um, and, and that's a skill that I like to instill in students. And also, like I said, that I use in um, communicating about the needs of older adults. And I'm sure the intersectionality allows you to connect the older adults in a way that you work with in a way that a lot of other practitioners are may not necessarily have that type of view and lens. So I think that could be very beneficial. Yes, it's been very helpful. You know, there's a lot of fear about certain pieces of medical equipment, like certain types of lifts. And I've been able to say to a client, look, when I was on this lift last summer, I felt this way. Is that perhaps the way that you're feeling? And can we come up with some type of musical way to help you feel more safe or more comfortable? And even just talking about it and um, the client knowing that I had that experience was, it brought us closer and I also feel like I got some street cred in the community. Yeah. Um, yeah. The more visible my physical disabilities, the 
closer that the clients feel to me some days. And what an impactful way to use your identities and intersectionality to connect to your clients, which I'm I'm sure later on when we talk about the topic for today, it'll it'll come back and connect. The next question I always like to ask is what led you to music therapy? Yeah, so I needed to write a profession-related research paper during my junior year in high school. So I Googled music and psychology, just like I'm sure many other music therapists. And I came across the American Music Therapy website um, below the American Massage Therapy website. Um, Common mistake. Yes. (laughs) And... um, I found some research on Alzheimer's disease and I wasn't really interested in Alzheimer's disease at the time, but somewhere deep within me, I remembered observing the decline of my great uncle and really just seeing the strain on my mom and my great aunt who were providing care for him at the end of his life. So I became interested in the research like, oh, okay, well, this will be good for this paper at least. I really didn't feel like I was a good enough musician to actually go to music school. And then later, fast forward to me getting accepted (laughs) to music school, being a, a music therapy student, I really wanted to focus on work with people who are incarcerated or deemed not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, so I did so during my internship. Um, and for so, so many reasons that, That was a very intense process that drew me back to elder care. There was just something about knowing that older adults have such a richness of experience to share um, and that maybe I could help them minimize the barriers to their expression of that. And of course, that sense of connection that really seemed appealing to me, I I say constantly that I'm a student of music, I'm a student of people, and I love to hear the stories of how people define themselves and the experiences that led them to this point. And I think something that keeps me going too is this sense that like, maybe we're magicians in a way. You know, um, this person with end-stage Alzheimer's um, does not, seem engaged and then the music lady rolls around and all of the sudden (laughs) they are engaging with me and then their child is there and I can transfer that engagement to them and it's a beautiful thing. I can hear and I'm sure our listeners can hear the humility behind working with older adults from you and working with I'm sure that's a transfer that we can make to any of our patients and clients. But it's 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 very wholesome to kind of hear the richness in your experiences. Yeah, well, and it's not just me and the client, right? It's the music. And music is really this integral phenomenon in the intersubjective space. I, I think that music is actually what enables that connection. So I joke that I'm a magician, but it's really the music that's doing the magic. And that's what potentially leads people to transformation. You know, without the music, sometimes it's really hard to connect with somebody on a deep level. For some clients, 
particularly people that I see in personal care who are more independent. Um, they just want to talk with me about their preferred musicians and music and reverence for the art. And for others, it's really engaging in that active and passive music gang. But in both situations, you know, it's the music that's that's bringing us together and and what holds us together. I think. And that's that's one of the most beautiful parts about music therapy is that it, I'm so glad you said that because it really is an integral piece to the therapeutic process. And obviously, like for some of us, we're like, yeah, well, duh. Um, but for those who are listening who may not have experience with music therapy, we're hearing about it for the first time. And if so, welcome. This is a great opportunity to really hear how how much of a presence it has in that process. Maybe it's another one of those zoom out, zoom in moments um, where if you zoom in, there is just so much going on. If you zoom out, then you you've, you forget about all that. Mm-hmm. So let's say you've gone through the process of getting certified, you went through schooling, you found out that really um, older adult work is where your passions kind of led you to um, in learning about individuals. What does it look like for you currently? Like, what does music therapy look like? Sure. So I came to my current place of employment about three years ago. The most interesting interview I've ever been on. Um, they said, hello, we want a music therapist. And then they said, what is music therapy, by the way? <laughs> and I thought, these are my kind of people, you know, <laughs> the people <laughs> that know that there's something good there and are open to exploring something and and humble enough to admit their, their um, lack of knowing at that time, you know? Um, the other thing that really drew me there is that they were so community focused. And my philosophy and theirs were a really good fit. Over time, we have really both grown in our understandings of community and relationship boundaries, which, of course, is always an issue um, that comes up in community music therapy and even in some other approaches. And naturally, COVID has had a major impact on the environment. In processing COVID experience as a music therapist, I've reflected a lot on those of us who were kind of locked in because I'm considered essential employee and those like contractors and people in private practice who were locked out. So at this time, I am just daily focusing on rebuilding the community's engagement in music therapy beyond that lifeline of keeping music alive in the building. For me, this is, of course, a really reflexive process as the community we were headed into the pandemic is not at all the community we are today. Unfortunately, that is on really basic literal terms where we lost some very important members of our community to COVID. And also just the transformation that happened emotionally with the staff and residents. At the same time, 
I am so excited to get back to supervising students, to doing uh, informal research at work, and to disseminate findings for my master's thesis and eventually pursue my ultimate goal as a music therapy educator in some capacity. I'm sure COVID had a substantial impact, as you were saying. Did you find it hard to be emotionally supportive for those adults when knowing that they were viewing or seeing their peers pass more more frequently and also knowing that your relations you also had therapeutic relationships with those individuals i'm sure that was a lot to balance since you were there throughout the process oh yes and it was actually i would say it's the families and the coworkers who affected me the most because I was restricted to one neighborhood. So I only had the experience of the 20 people that I was providing care for. And I knew that people on the other side of the door were dying. And I was still engaging with coworkers who were going through that. Um, and, and that was just heartbreaking and, to see not just the grief, but the anxiety and the fear related to transmission. That was so hard. You know, my, I hosted a a happy hour just for my household when conditions started to change and CMS said that it was okay for us to have them in groups. And We had root beer floats and orange soda floats because that's what uh, the residents wanted that day. I I don't know. They turned down the alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) They just felt like, you know, some sugar, I guess. And, And my boss was helping me on that day. And she and I were both uncomfortable at having people at the same table without their masks on. It just felt like, oh, no, we're putting them at risk, um, even though we weren't, you know, it's even hard for me to say, even though we weren't, you know, it's the invisible nature of COVID has just made it so tricky in that environment. And I really think elder care is going to be one of the settings that we see the impact of COVID for a long time. And policy and I, I, yes, absolutely. In so many ways, I, I could definitely see how COVID would impact the way that we, the way that we interact in sessions, the way that we sanitization like practices across different communities. And also thinking about how many people we have in groups. I mean, I feel like the list just goes on and on. Yeah. I mean, Even on a day-to-day basis, I'm working with families who are losing loved ones who are in end stage of some type of um, dementia diagnosis and seeing families make the choice not to come in was just so hard, so hard for everyone involved. We were really fortunate to have received a grant. that provided for iPads 
and not just iPads, but stands that had special swinging arms so that we could bring the iPads as close as possible to the people, you know, even as they were laying in bed and unresponsive, that it was the best we could do, you know? Yeah. But another great example of technology today, adapting and helping to help build connections, essentially helping to build those connections, even through a virtual space that is safe, but it's not the same, but it's, it's better than nothing too. Yeah. I've another culture, I think with elder care is that we tend not to use a lot of technology and this experience has absolutely made me an iPad believer. I, yeah. I use my iPad for so many things. You know, um, this week we had a, a happy hour <laughs> put together by our CTRSs, our recreation therapists. I know I'm the two anecdotes I'm telling you are already about happy hour. You know, being older is fantastic. Um, yeah. <laughs> so their happy hour this week is like great outdoors campfire themed. And so I was able to put a video of a campfire. I mean, the video just stays on the campfire for eight hours. <laughs> and I. Oh, I've totally get, used that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Christmas get, time. Like, yeah. You get the crackling, you get the crickets. And I, I hooked that up to the television and then I'm, because that's on the TV, I can still use my cell phone that I'm using on my um, sound system to do any recorded music I might need. And it was just, oh, the ambiance was completely different. Oh my gosh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I know that's low level tech. But no, but it's, it's it's really transformative. It's atmospheric, which yeah is another part of that therapeutic process. So, the next question that I wanted to ask you was regarding this is our big question: What do you contribute to the world of music therapy, or how are you innovative? Yeah, I think this question is probably thirty two years in the making. Because I, you know, I, I mentioned before, I, I grew up in an environment and I probably had the propensity not to view myself as having a lot of value. And I've really come through honoring my clients' identities and my own music therapy process of, of starting to understand how cool my identities are. I think the intersections of my marginalized identities, as well as my ability to pass for straight and non-disabled on certain days, are essential to my experiences as a human and as a music therapist. I've come to understand, especially through supervising students and interns, and thank God for the Disabled Music Therapy Collective, that marginalized voices are so needed in research and writing and in the classroom. It's as frightening as it can be. I'm really coming to the coming to terms with the fact that while we might have similar experiences of oppression and liberation in music and in our profession, 
there is not and cannot be another music therapist and educator like me. My own journey in music therapy keeps prodding me down this road of appreciation for how I've come together as a person. Sorry, I, that was really impactful. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. It, um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so um, like I mentioned earlier on, relationships and the inner subjectivity are fascinating to me, you know? So with fantastic mentorship, I did a qualitative study for my master's thesis. I was interested in therapeutic relationships with queer music therapy clients and how music therapists thought and spoke about them. I didn't know at the time that this was part of my own coming out process, part of maybe some atoning for being able to pass. I was fortunate enough to have a sample of participants that included both queer and non-queer music therapists, which led to some very interesting and challenging insights. I really uh, grappled with how, as a queer person, to process and communicate about some findings that I felt disrespected by at times or that kind of hurt my heart and thinking, well, what if I was a queer person receiving these services? And at the same time, you know, it, it was like I mentioned, both queer and non-queer music therapy participants. Uh, I'm sorry, music therapist participants in the study. So it's not that, oh, okay, um, you know, the, in a very judgmental way, the queer music therapists gave the right answers in air quotes. It's more complicated than that. So I have a few themes that came from my research. We can jump into those. I don't know if you have any questions or I would love for us to dive into those. I did want you, if you feel comfortable, to kind of dissect and identify your identities. That's kind of funny to say. Uh, dissect and explain your identities to everyone so that they can get that cultural and perspective lens for you before you talk about the research. Absolutely. And this is part of my jam as a supervisor and continuing education provider. I have a, a couple different tools that I use to help break down identity that really help. And I was thinking maybe I could pull it up, but I have no idea where it is right now. So for me, you know, the most salient are, of course, um, my double queer identities. I am certainly pansexual <laughs> and really was affirmed in uh, Angel Hayes lyrics um, saying something to the effect of, well, I'm not straight and I sure as hell am not bisexual. <laughs> and on some, to some extent, the binary never really made sense to me. It just seems like a convention that maybe I could go along with. And I, I disregarded that 
when I acknowledged that I was pansexual. I'm, I'm with a cis man, so people just assume that I'm straight. So I've got rainbow pins on my lanyard. <laughs> I've got my dog who comes to work with me has a rainbow <laughs> a necklace, her collar. And I have used those as implicit communication to indicate mm -hmm. that I'm a safe space. There are little signs in my work all around. As far as my gender, I, for those of you at home, I'm shaking my head in confusion, <laughs> which really tells me that I, I just, the binary does not jive with me. I have some days where I really enjoy the femme thing. I've got some piercings that I enjoy filling with really nice big earrings that can reinforce that femme identity. Um, and other days, you know, I just, I don't want to shave. So I don't. And I don't want to wear a bra. So I don't, you know, and I, you know, so that's still a work in progress. And I think that's really important for people to understand about gender and sexuality that our understandings of ourselves are so developmental isn't the word because fluidity is such an important factor. It's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So developmental would be like, well, I come to understand myself as this. And then I came to understand myself as this. And that, that can be the case for some people. Um, I think especially, you know, for pan people who might say, you know, I was straight and then I was bi and yeah, I'm pan, but it's more nuanced than that, you know? Um, so yeah, that really just complicates so much. Um, and then on top of that, you know, my disabilities are also fluid and I, I have several physical disabilities. The one that's most salient with me right now is uh, degenerative disc disease. So I am sitting currently in the most expensive piece of furniture that my partner and I have ever purchased. <laughs> I'm still grappling with that, um, but it's, it's a, a power recliner um, that I realized was going to be necessary for me to even think about a PhD because much of my master's and my thesis was spent in bed and I didn't like that boundary. So I wanted to have a professional space where I could be comfortable. And, you know, I struggle with the socioeconomic status implications of that. Recognizing that not every music therapist has a financial ability to 
be comfortable in their disability and still be productive in the music therapy world. I also have several mental health diagnoses um, that resulted from um, a challenging upbringing. Well, thank you too for feeling open and willing to share that with our listeners so that they can get a better idea of your background and how it influences your research, any types of internal like biases that may or may not. I mean, the whole point of research is to be as objective as possible, right? But to get this idea of how it influences it, that could be a hot topic. I see that you're getting excited. So <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just, I you know, I don't know that that's possible or necessarily helpful when we're asking questions, particularly about relationships. And yeah, that's all I can say about that right now. (laughs) But something for us as listeners and for me as well as the host to think about. So I I appreciate you bringing that up because it's, it's always good to challenge traditional thought as well. Oh yeah. It's how we adapt. Yeah. I, I attempted to bracket to do an epogee as you know, you're, you're expected to do with qualitative research. (laughs) I just spent so much. I mean, this, this work took years and so much of that time was spent spinning my wheels, writing really angsty memos and reflexive journals. (laughs) And, um, thank God for excellent supervision. Cause <laughs> I, I don't know what I would have done. I definitely, you know, I felt stuck in the muck for so much of that process. And that's a part of research that it, people who have done research, I think are familiar with that feeling of like, just it's moving so slow, but at one point it's just like, Oh, like it's just these little pieces that you have to put together But for those who have not done it before, I I think that's extremely insightful. Yeah, I'm I'm feeling a theme of this zoom in, zoom out thing. Right. So my my supervisor really prompted me to zoom out. (laughs) I was so, so in the mire at that time that I I needed that external source to, to help me back out. So thinking about once you you did back out, um, could you tell us a little bit more about what the research looked like and kind of what we were getting to a little bit earlier? Yeah, so I was speaking to some themes. So number one, really, music therapists have to, have to, must employ and pursue cultural humility. Even though you might share a salient identity with a client, you're never going to 100% be that client. And that's, that's pivotal. Um, even queer music therapists in the study recognize themselves as perpetuating stereotypes with queer clients because oppressive systems are so deeply ingrained in our society. On top of that, you know, all of the participants spoke in some way about the complexity of identities and their intersections. It's a conversation that can really quickly become convoluted and confusing. So supervision and introspection are vital. 
interestingly, um, queer music therapists agreed that queer specific supervision is necessary when working with queer clients. Um, I think that that's kind of in line as some music therapists of color have identified. In their introspection, music therapists need to reflect not only on themselves and their role in the therapeutic relationship, they also really need to process the client's process. And again, that intersubjective space where the music lives. As a fantastic um, friend and colleague of mine has emphasized, like, there's no right or wrong and nothing is static. Pursuing absolutism is a deeply, deeply ingrained idea of colonization. And I don't know, I'm type A. I want to be right. That's why I was initially drawn to research. <laughs> but it's just, it's not, it's not there. Even in, you know, the gold standard quantitative research, there is that like point zero zero one percent chance that something could be context specific and that's a big point of humanity you know these these we, we're so different that it, to generalize one population as we've seen again is not effective like each of these intersectional identities, there, there are some things that are overarching themes, but it may not be the same for everybody or the extent of that theme as well. So I'm thinking about a really great example would be geological relation to acceptance within the queer community. Because the experiences could be dependent on where you are, but also intersectionality, it could be based on the religion, cultural experiences. So it's, it's just limiting. I, I, and sorry if I'm hijacking like your thought, I'm just, this is making me think this as well. It's very limiting to the potential benefits that you could provide if you're thinking of everybody under one lens. Absolutely. You know, and the complexity of that as somebody who has pedagogy in mind is like, okay, so how do we teach undergraduate students about that? Yeah. Oh my <laughs> <And> goodness. <clears throat> right. So Whitehead Plow and Tan gave us this beautiful intersections book um, that really just got the conversation going. Um, Belgrave and Kim just put out something as well. Uh, music therapy in a multicultural context, you know, like those are good. And those can't be taken. Like we need to explain. I, I maybe this is something that I will learn in developmental courses in my PhD of like how to be an educator of how to explain that these are not hard and fast rules. Yeah. They're merely guides to get you to start on that track or the journey of each identity. 
So with your research, once you kind of got that methodology down behind who you were interviewing and kind of their perspectives, what are some trends that you saw? I'm very interested in um, specifically queer therapists versus straight versus cis. Did you go into gender separations Mm -hmm. from queer? Okay. I just want to check on that. um, Yeah, well... I allowed participants to define themselves. Okay. So I had, I believe, one participant who identified as multiply queer. And I just kind of left it at that for them. Yeah. All of the participants spoke to their reliance on implicit communication, like I mentioned before. So I think the question for listeners, be they music therapists, be they allies of music therapy or uh, allies of queer music therapy, you know, just asking themselves, what do I communicate with my choices in self-expression? For somebody who is perhaps gender fluid that can be really tricky because we could be sending messages that aren't consistent and that's okay because that's your message the issue can be that division between how you express yourself at work and how you express yourself not at work and finding spaces where the expression is conducive to the therapeutic environment, you know? So how do you style yourself on a Monday versus a Saturday? And then of course, as music therapists, thinking about the music that you use personally and professionally, again, what does it communicate when I'm listening to only queer artists or only straight artists or, you know, only cis artists and, or again, you know, generalizing that to other populations. Like, do I listen to disabled artists? Do I bring that into my session? Something that I found really touched heartstring of mine and a personal passion of mine was when one participant brought up drag and I was like, yes, let's go there. Let's (laughs) do this. Um, and I'm thinking like drag is definitely therapeutic. Have Mm, people thought about it in that way? (laughs) I don't know. You know, and I've had my own experiences of, being in drag very, very poorly in undergrad. And I've also witnessed some healing take place in in people. And my friend and colleague, CTRS, the other day said, oh my goodness, you have to check out this show. It's called Drag Heals, H-E-A-L-S. And it's a brief documentary on 
a woman up in Toronto who does these workshop-based courses with varying performance styles. Um, this show just happens to center on drag artists and, and using their art as a medium for exploring feeling. Um, and I'm like, dang, she got to it, <laughs> you know? Um, and I'm really excited at some point perhaps to reach out to her. Now, some music therapists may bristle because she does not indicate on her website anywhere that she is a certified creative arts therapist or has any type of background in healing. Um, and that's where you've got those touchy boundaries, of course. But, you know, I think it's definitely something to explore, whether it's the process of drag whether it's bringing drag music into sessions, which just like any genre has its time and place, you know, and its own aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's definitely a fire starter. Yeah, one of the places that you can find some music by drag artists will definitely be in the playlist located in our show notes for today's episode. But in addition, I, I find that so interesting. And I think the place where you can bridge for those who are getting their a little bristled <laughs> from it would be that by reaching out, you do have that experience and that therapeutic background. So what's wrong with the concept of collaborating? Exactly. Exactly. That's where interprofessional collaborations are so needed. Um, I also wanted to mention while we're on the topic of drag, just all of the different subcultures in the queer community and <laughs> let's do it for those who don't know, my face just like lit up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I can't, you know, like give an alphabetical listing because everyone's expressions are different. And at the same time, you know, when I'm Talking about drag, I get concerned that people are just going to jump on the RuPaul bandwagon and assume that everything RuPaul says is gospel about the queer and drag community. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention how transphobic RuPaul has been and continues to be. So for people who are just delving into educating themselves, I would really strongly consider, you know, an overall education and something like the documentary Pride that's on, it was produced on FX, but it's available on Hulu now, is great for giving you an overview and then finding and doing your own digging about certain sub- components of queer culture i find paris is burning is also a really great documentary oh yeah oh yeah uh, and nothing gets me more aggravated as a 
queer white lady <laughs> than listening to people say, yes, queen. Like, if you don't know where that came from, <laughs> you don't understand how ironic and disrespectful it is for you to appropriate that from a just incredibly, incredibly marginalized community of of people who, God, just like created their own universe of safety and comfort. And it is just so bothersome to me to see that appropriated, um, misappropriated. These topics of appropriation, especially within the queer community, and where we get things from and the lack of acknowledgement within those communities that we appropriate, hence appropriation. Um, words, phrases, um, mannerisms, etc. from are a really innate part of the community that I think is just starting to be addressed a little bit more actively. And I would be happy to talk with you a little bit more about that and with our listeners right after this commercial break. So everyone stay tuned. everyone and welcome back to the Voices of Music Therapy. We are sitting down with Sarah Biedka and we are talking about all these wonderful aspects of the queer community, the relationship in the therapeutic process with queer clients. And then we are just diving into this idea of appropriation um, within queer culture. And uh, Sarah, I'd love for you to speak a little bit more on that for our audience so that they can get more in-depth information. Yeah. Um, I'm realizing that I was definitely using coded language and I want to be explicit here, um, both to honor people who are in the community and educate people who aren't really when we're talking about Paris is burning and we're talking about the culture of houses. If you've ever heard that we're talking about trans people of color, you know, we're talking about if, if you watch this pride documentary, again, second plug, <laughs> you'll find that these structures came up before people even understood the concept of trans. And so they knew that they enjoyed dressing and a gender other than theirs. But what's really important is not just that process, but the fact that it's intersecting with oftentimes a really, really young age. You know, these are people who were kicked out of their homes and just went to New York City because they had an idea that that was it. And then people who were of color. And then really, if we're going to call a spade a spade, it, many of them also, because of their youth and their difficulty in being hired, were sex workers. So there's just so much complexity that was going on in that community at the time. And the beautiful art that was able to be shared with us um, in documentaries like Paris is Burning that, that captured that experience 
I, I think that particularly white people need to take a step back and say, I can respect this. And in respecting this, I understand that this is not mine. And for those who are listening to who may not know what a house is, for example, (laughs) um, I could talk on that or you could talk on that. It's whichever you would like. Um, you, you'd probably do a more concise job of it. I tend to ramble. (laughs) I'll try my best. It's a, it's a lot of pressure, but we got this, um, from my understanding, from my limited understanding, um, this house is the idea of chosen family being that you can make, um, the supports in your life, whether financially, emotionally, community-based connections. Um, the house is an opportunity for somebody who has more lived experience, who has possibly the financial ability to support people or the experiences within the queer community to support other people who are coming into it or who are not in as good of financial situations and kind of create like that family. That's where you get the house. It's, it's the, the family that you are a part of. So to be in a house means that there's usually like a house mother or father or somebody in charge who is kind of running the ship uh, and making sure that everyone's taken care of to make sure that everybody feels supported. Um, And that ties into ballroom culture as well, where, that's kind of from my understanding, which may, I don't want to talk because I'm afraid that I'm wrong, but from my understanding currently, that's kind of where it originated from. Yeah. And I mean, so you'll notice that typically it's the founding house mother who comes up with the last name that is shared across generations. You know, there are some houses um, in New York that are like, five generations deep. It's just, it's amazing um, to think of the legacy that these women created. Yeah. And, and it's shared values too. Yes. You know? Um, And I think for a deeper dive into this in a entertaining way, um, you can check out my love Billy Porter on Pose um, also an FX show. I, I've got to tell you, I spent a significant amount of my childhood in Pittsburgh in a very religious context. And Billy speaks to me on just so many levels and his version of, Oh, what a beautiful morning is definitely how I wake up in the morning. Got to check it out on Spotify. (laughs) It'll be in the playlist. <laughs> yeah, it's it's something that there like I've said this several times, but there is a shift to hopefully a consistent shift in acknowledging um trans people of color, non-binary people of color, all these queer individuals who are marginalized, including within the community and at large, but those with disabilities who are queer, just um a big shift that is happening. And I think that's important for people to know if they're not already aware of when they are thinking of working with queer clients. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because at times I need to find a way to set my 
disabled identity aside when I'm in queer spaces, because like literally I can't get into the gay bar because it's not accessible or, you know, like I found situations like that over and over again, um, that have been kind of tricky. Um, I think especially when we're in pride month, we need to be aware of who it is that is like the Imago, like the (laughs) the perfect image of the queer person going into pride month. And are they heavily branded? Um, (laughs) Do they have any other marginalized identities? You know, are they just a walking, talking stereotype? And is that beneficial to our community? Would you like to talk a little bit more about some other themes that you have noticed? So, again, to open a huge can of worms, most of the participants spoke about inner conflict and questioning of the ideal balance of self-disclosure in therapeutic relationships. You know, again, there's no right answer. Um, I think at times you could probably accuse me of being overly sharing in terms of my disabled identity with clients. At the same time, it's because they can't see the scar on my back. (laughs) You know, they don't have the video evidence of me being in a Hoyer lift, um, I actually <laughs> took a picture of my um, bracelets when I was in the hospital um, for my back surgery last summer, which we are five days away from the anniversary of me developing cauda equina syndrome, um, which for those of you who don't know, my discs were so compressed, my nerves were so cut off that I couldn't pee anymore. (laughs) And that just became, yeah, that became a super emergency. Um, so hence me going to the hospital and, and really needing to have obviously a catheter and emergency spine surgery. So I had a total discectomy and laminectomy of my L5 S1 um, space in my spine. So all of that is to say, I, I took pictures and sent them to my boss of the, the, uh, the tags on me that said fall risk. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know what? I consider fall risk to be a compliment in elder care. I think it's one of those things that is like a scarlet letter. Um, I was super proud to be a fall risk because <laughs> of course it indicated that I was on medication that made me unstable, but it also, I think indicates uh, ferocity and tenacity in our clients. People who are living as if, as they want to live. And that's, that's super important. Um, for us to honor. 
Yes. And that, that just ties into the lived experiences and how it develops into who you are as a person. These, these oh, yeah. people are the ones who keep fighting. Yeah. You know, and it's, so my study really had nothing to do with older adults um, directly at the same time who I am as a, a queer therapist and so, queer enthusiast. Can I say that? Love it. Let's add it in. <laughs> yeah. As a, yeah, queer enthusiast. I, you know, I, I really appreciate learning about our elders and I think that it's very important that we are able to capture and learn from the experiences of our queer elders, um, particularly in the generation before AIDS, because, you know, as it is called the plague in our community, that was, oh, I mean, almost a whole generation lost. And it, affected our culture. It affected the intergenerational relationships in our culture. And there are experiences that could be lost if we don't act quickly. Um, yeah. I mean, at the same time, there are long haulers who have been able to live with HIV AIDS successfully and that is beautiful i just i don't want us to lose the generation before them because that's not something i've heard talked about that much you you hear about the generation that was like in their 20s throughout the aids crisis but before them it was a lot more of like the social stigma i mean obviously the social stigma affected the actions that were not taken towards the AIDS crisis, but thinking about the experiences of those before. Yeah, there's, so I think it's on Netflix, a movie called A Secret Love. And it is- I feel like I've seen basically, it. Basically, <laughs> I don't know. They like, they advertised it as like, the real life, a league of their own. <laughs> so during World War II, they brought, softball players from Canada and from all across the United States to fill in for baseball players. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of lesbians involved in that. And this story specifically hones in on a lesbian couple. And I, to me, it's like, you know, it's them. It focuses mainly on them in the modern era. So it's, hearing about their experiences when they were young, but also like, what's it like to be a lesbian couple that has lived through so many different eras. And the phrases they used to refer to each other throughout the eras and their relationship. Yeah. Well, I mean, for those of, of you who have heard us using the word queer, like this whole episode yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> are deeply uncomfortable, you know, that's a generational thing. You know, it's, and that is about reclaiming, um, for some people, for some people, they are still uncomfortable with that. Um, and that's where you have to get to know, not just a person's identity, but their relationship to that identity and how they understand 
themselves as having that identity. Yes, I think a great example is when I first heard that term used in like a non-derogatory manner, it it took some some time to sit with it before <laughs> I could use it for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'll never forget the first person I heard somebody say, call me a dyke. And I was like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the ultimate respect is using the words that somebody wants to be used to describe them. Before we finish up with today's episode, are there any last things you'd like to touch on? Yes, I would like to talk about probably the most important finding from my study. So all of the queer participants emphasized over and over and over again that queer identity is not a, a medical diagnosis. It's, it's not. You know, if you're working with older adults, you might be working with somebody who at one time understood their identity or the identity of someone in the community to be a medical diagnosis, but it's not. So what does that mean for us as clinicians? We need to understand that queer people enter music therapy based on context and referral, which should shape the focus and direction of the therapeutic relationship and its work. Don't assume that just because somebody's queer, they are They've got this like great amount of inner turmoil that they need to work through with you. That's just not the case. You know, queer people are not in music therapy just because they're queer. Queerness isn't a problem. The oppressive systems and lifetimes of marginalization and hatred and mistreatment are. Now, there are settings that provide support to uh, queer youth, um, for example, um, maybe housing and, and maybe music therapists might find work in that setting. Okay. Let's double it back. Why Mm -hmm. are they in that house? That's the reason for music therapy. Not (laughs) because they got, because they're queer. It's because they got kicked out of the house uh you know oftentimes Um, he's like a youth for instance yeah yeah so or even you know doubling (laughs) doubling back to my love for older adults if you're working with somebody who is in one of the hiv aids centers at ends of life with somebody you know, it's HIV AIDS and end of life that you're seeing this person for, not because they're queer. And so queer participants asked other music therapists very explicitly in my study to engage in authentic advocacy, to practice what they preach, um, wearing a rainbow pin for one month of the year, or even the whole year really isn't enough. We have to use our talents and our strengths to lift each other up towards liberation 
whether that means participating in rallies or marches, performing research that centers pursuit of anti-oppressive practices, or any other way of safely moving from rhetoric to action. So I emphasize safety because I do understand that for some people, wearing a rainbow pin isn't okay in the context that you work. And I respect that. So, you know, figuring out how to integrate advocacy into your life. It's really important to recognize that for some of us, simply existing is an act of defiance. And that's where the joy, uh, to harken back to ballroom culture, that's where the joy of ballroom culture and of other cultures in other, you know, I, I just go back to my first experiences in queer clubs um, and like the joy of dancing to Lady Gaga, <laughs> and like <laughs> feeling so connected to people for the first time. You know, it's, it's said that experiencing joy can be an act of resistance. And it's what I wish for my music therapy work to aid clients in creating and holding communal spaces of joy. So for those who are, you know, hearing all this for the first time, I'm sure you all listening are feeling as impacted as I am, or to some degree, just really thankful and humbled to be able to be hearing all the things that you're bringing up that are very important. Um, what are some takeaways that they can have for their actual, like an action step for them that they can do? Mm. Or a good place to start, rather. Yeah. I think a good place to start is by looking at yourself and what you do. Is this performative allyship? Or is this real to me? Am I buying this t-shirt at Target? <laughs> I, uh, you know, the, the, you know, Target and PetSmart both have impressive pride collections and uh, they rolled out in the middle of May, at least here in Philly. And um, I'm sure they'll be gone at the end of June. And like, pride isn't seasonal. <laughs> and, you know, like, is that a shirt you can wear all summer long, all year long to demonstrate your support? You know, as, as a disabled person, I'm, I'm very understanding of people who cannot participate in marches and rallies. I, most of the time it's not safe for me. Um, but just thinking about for me, my, my strengths and my talents are passion for speaking, speaking about music therapy, speaking about clients and speaking about people. So I saw a post on Facebook about your interest in doing a podcast. And I was like, yes, you know, mm -hmm. um, thinking about ways of disseminating research that are non-traditional, 
I was posting all through my thesis on Facebook and getting conversations started. I lovingly called it my big queer thesis. Following, if, if you're somebody that, that does not know, is, is just starting into this culture and you've got so many questions, you know, watching not just one perspective, but watching queer narratives on your streaming, <laughs> your, your streaming choice or, or getting something from the library or, you know, I follow a number of weekly newsletters that are related to different communities that I'm in. And if there's something that I'm reading that I don't understand, I have that curiosity and I look into it. And I think that curiosity is what is that vested interest. It's what separates performative allyship, which says, hey, everybody, I get this newsletter in my inbox once a week and actually reading it, delving into what it's saying, maybe even starting a, a conversation with someone in, in your life who you feel is affirmative, um, that you feel safe to have those conversations with. Do you have any more ideas? You have my mind swirling with all of these ideas <laughs> constantly. Okay. These topics are, are so interconnected. Maybe a last thing to touch on other than plugging all the wonderful things that you're doing and ways to contact you would be within like a conference setting, how to navigate that with queer topics. I don't want to open it. That might be too long. I don't know. But also, I think respecting when a space isn't yours, you know, we like briefly touched on that. I know it was a hotbed topic. I Like, if you don't understand why a space isn't yours, like the closed affinity spaces uh, at conference, being curious again to explore and listen to why those are necessary. Thank you so much for allowing it to be seen as an opportunity rather than like a closed door. No, no why. Mm. You know, I, I appreciate oh, yeah. you framing it that way because that's really what it is. It's an opportunity to learn. Oh yeah. Because once we have that closed door, once we have that space to rejuvenate and to heal, then we can bust the door down and hang with our allies and have a, a great queer intersectional time, you know, it's just respecting space. Are there any last things that you would like to plug ways that people can reach you or find all the incredible work that you're doing? Oh boy. Um, I was not necessarily prepared for this question. Um, I am a little concerned about giving the, the universe, my email address, and I am private on Facebook, but I would love to connect with people. So is there some way, like, do people ever reach out to you and they? 
If you'd like to reach Sarah Biedka, you can always email us at voicesofmusictherapy at gmail.com. We will forward that information um, to them, and I'm sure she'll get back to you as soon as she can. So if you're interested in hearing more about this specific work, you can keep an eye out for an upcoming publication um, that I'm hoping to provide in one of the music therapy journals. I can't talk about much more than that, but just keep an eye out. And again, if you reach out to the podcast, they'll forward your information along to me and then you can keep in touch with me that way. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And so that everybody knows in the show notes is where you can find the link to that article once it is released. And just so that everyone knows, don't forget to rate our podcast on Apple Music and listen to our playlist uh, linked in the bio. Don't forget to subscribe to hear new episodes every other Friday. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to recommend a guest or engage more with us, you can always email us at voicesofmusictherapy at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Voices of Music Therapy. If you'd like to see today's guest or learn more about the show, check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Voices of Music Therapy or on Twitter at VOMT Podcast. If you have any questions or if you know any innovative music therapist and would like to recommend them for the show, you can email us at Voices of Music Therapy at gmail.com.